0: This installment of the KunzerCast is brought to you by Chelsea Green, publisher of James McCommons' Waiting on a Train, the embattled future of passenger rail service, with a foreword written by James Howard Kunzler. Waiting on a Train is a critical look at the embattled future of passenger rail service told by a journalist who spent one year traveling across America by train in 2008. Look for Waiting on a Train at your local bookstore or visit chelseagreen.com to purchase Waiting on a Train and other great titles online. That's C-H-E-L-S-E-A green.com. Additional support for today's program comes from Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com forward slash Kunstler for a free audiobook download. I lived in lies all my life. And I've been living here for a long, long time. And I know it's been coming down while
1: now. I don't know whether you've seen this. Yeah, and I can't remember. I think it's Jim Kunstler. I I went over to SMU and heard him the other night. He is worth hearing. He's a generalist, but he tells us where we made the mistakes.
0: Hey, everyone, it's Duncan Crary. You're listening to the Kunstler Cast, a weekly conversation with James Howard Kunstler about the tragic comedy of suburban sprawl. Jim is the author of The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and World Made by Hand. At the top of the podcast, you heard the famous oil man T. Boone Pickens. That's a recording of him delivering testimony to Congress last year. And in that testimony, he referenced Jim as a generalist. And I wanted to use that as the seed for today's discussion. As you know, sometimes I like to open up the topics of our conversations to a more philosophical or abstract area. And so today we're going to be discussing generalism and uh, the role of generalists. As luck would have it, um... Tomorrow the voting for the annual podcast awards begins, and the Kunstler cast is nominated in the general category. Now, if you've been following the show, you might know that I I tried to avoid having to compete against This American Life, which is the great public radio international program, which I love. Last year they were in the arts and cultural section, but this year they're in the general section along with the Kunstler cast. So it's going to be an uphill battle, but if you would like to cast your vote for our program and support the little guy in this in this case, visit podcastawards.com. All right, let's get on with the show. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay now.
2: Yeah? I've things... recovered from the morning anyway. Yeah, I've had a... And now it's afternoon, thank but God. I've had a
0: crummy morning too, but things are good in general?
2: Yeah, they're fine with me. I don't have any complaints.
0: Okay, well... I want to talk to you speaking about things being good in general. I want to talk to you about generalists, generalism, generalizations. Ooh. Okay, this is one of those kind of slightly abstract topics, but you you are a would you describe
2: yourself as a generalist? Well, I suppose, you know, in terms of the uh, the books that I've written about the subjects that we are talking about, you know, cities and suburbs and stuff. Perhaps another way of stating it is the danger of hyper specialization mm. which is you know a slightly different way of looking at it and our culture is just getting hammered from hyper specialists who are absolutely wonderful at what they do and, and and disregardful of the larger picture for our purposes probably the best uh, the exemplar of all that is the traffic engineer the, the traffic engineers uh, have these exquisitely fine-tuned formulas for doing what they do they can build highways with all the right you know curve ratios and the grades and they they can design streets that move uh, huge numbers of cars flawlessly through places but as they do that, they tend to screw up our cities pretty badly. Probably the most common experience we have with that in our towns is and you see these everywhere is you go to, you know, a city whether it's Providence or Minneapolis or or, you know, St. Louis, and there's always some set of important streets that have been turned into four-laners or six-laners in the heart of town. You know, they've removed the parking from the parallel parking. And they've made them one way so that the cars can move with great efficiency through the city. And you end up with a street that's dead and a neighborhood that's dead because it's composed of nothing but one-way, four-lane streets. So the, the traffic engineers have done their job and carried out their specialty exactly as they've been commissioned and directed to do. And they've ended up destroying the city. Yeah, when we have uh,
0: hyper-specialists defining success within their branch um, doesn't always lead to overall success or success in general. Economists do the same thing, right? They define, you know, success or cost efficiency or whatever one way, the cost of something, and then they forget to decker the the human
2: cost. Well, there's also that, you know, that great aphorism, people who know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Right. But, you know, one of my big beefs, you know, for a long time has been, um statistical analysis and and econometrics you know they drive me crazy is we bring to our arguments about the the problems and troubles and issues that we have um generally in the u.s nothing more than econometric or statistical arguments and it's a terrible way of understanding anything important uh and yet we persist in it we, you know But I suppose some of it has to do with the success of science and empiricism in you know, in in our time and especially in in the time that's now behind us, the twentieth century, and the great strides we made in understanding information in mathematics and, and formulas and stuff. And so now we tend to use math and formulas for everything. The economists right now are, are, are coming under the most fire because they've failed the most miserably of anyone to understand uh, the dynamics of our time. You know, and, and they tend to, to understand them, especially the academic economists, almost solely in terms of econometric models which are only a substitute for reality, they've tended to produce a, a failure of perception and therefore a failure in our ability to act in the face of the things that happen to us. So Jim, getting back to this term generalist, you, I,
0: I know that people don't like to be labeled and they don't want to associate themselves with one particular brand or another, so it sounds like you're a little bit reluctant to be labeled a generalist.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of reluctant to be labeled anything, you know, I mean, uh, you know, a doom and gloomer or, a, you know, uh, a hippie. Um, okay, um, let's just define, like, what what is a generalist then? I would, you know, if I have to define myself as one, I would say that I am a generalist by default, really, because... Uh, I never went to graduate school and I was never certified in any particular discipline, you know. Mm. I kind of just rambled and, and blundered and lurched around as a young person. My pathway was from college to journalism. And, I mean, my college experience was, had nothing really to do with what I do in professional life. Just by happenstance, I ended up, not being certified, I wasn't an architect, I wasn't an urban designer, thank God, probably. Uh, you know, all I was was a writer. Yeah. Uh, but I had the, the the things that I was interested in, and, uh, you know, I had to sort of educate myself in them, and, you know, I still don't consider myself a great expert in any of these things. My, You know, I consider my strong point to be prose composition, you know, not to be... Someone who's an expert in any of these actual disciplines. Mm.
0: You also have some thoughts that are unique, behind, that are being expressed through that prose that you're.
2: Yeah, I don't know that that. I don't know that they're unique. Um, th- they're thoughts that are, at the moment, counter to the conventional wisdom of my culture mm-hmm. and counter to the practices and habits of my culture uh, and you know very specifically that is not generally having to do with our physical surroundings and the places that we live and th- these are things that have concerned me ever since I became an adult and became aware of uh, you know just being dissatisfied with the places that I had to live mm. whether it was boston massachusetts or the suburb that i spent 3 years in as a kid or 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 the Manhattan that I knew in nineteen sixty four or the uh, small town u s a that I've lived in for thirty years. Mm.
0: We get a lot of feedback to this program, and you get a lot of comments on your blog mm. and i I talk to a lot of people who've heard you speak and read your books, and I, I'm constantly hearing feedback on all these ideas, and people are upset about some of the general a lot of the generalizations that you make that I make, you know.
2: Well, matter. you're being a little general about it. Well, be specific about a generalization. What's one that I that I made the people object to?
0: I don't know. Our recent show on Los Angeles, uh-huh. um, you know, that we just put out. You know, people were they were upset that you were making broad, sweeping statements about you know the car culture in Los Angeles. Let's say.
2: Well. I'm sorry, but the, the car culture in Los Angeles defines the experience of being in Los Angeles. So just because it's self-evident doesn't mean that they're certainly not doing it right. So it, you know, even if it's self-evident, they're still stuck with a way of doing things that it's pretty horrible. So I was making generalizations about how the automobile tyrannizes Los Angeles. Now, I don't know that that's um, inconsistent with the way things really are out there. I don't think so.
0: Right. Or, or even our show about um, Detroit, where we toured the tor- city of Detroit, uh-huh. uh, you know, with Google Street View, you made some large statements about, I think, Detroit in general, and then there's always people pointing out little pockets of good things mm-hmm. going on that didn't make the discussion.
2: Well, look, at I have a general, you know, speaking of general things, I have a general principle in my own doings th- that you can never overstate people's capacity to misunderstand each other, mm. you know, or, or, or to pick a fight about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look, at you know, just people are just like chattering monkeys and <laughs> we, we'll find anything to, to, you know, to yak about or complain about or protest or, or um, you know, disapprove of or object to. So.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a little, there's some pleasure in being a contrarian as well. I mean for I, me well <laughs> I think
2: in general for people Oh oh for well I suppose I don't know I know there are an awful lot of people who seem to love to just go along with uh, the you know who feel uh, who need to be really comfortable to be to go along with the conventional thinking yeah. I mean that's obvious I was in a whole room full of the estate uh, planners of Ohio, or maybe it was the northern region of Ohio about three days ago, and I, I gave a spiel out in uh, Akron. Uh, and um, you know, they're they're definitely pleasant enough people, and they're well-meaning and all, but you really feel the weight of the conventional thought just hanging in the air there, you know, and the you know the inability to understand the world or at least express themselves beyond what is permissible by the group. And this is another big thing, I think, about human society is that so much of it depends on the consensus of, of what's okay and what we give people permission to think or express. I know I'm generalizing here, too. You well, know. this is the perfect... Show to do that. Well, on, Jim. Okay, <laughs> but I think it's true that there there are tremendous unspoken, not articulated boundaries in our culture about what's okay to say and what's not okay to say or to think, and so the people take a great deal of comfort in not exceeding those boundaries. Because it allows you to get on with your normal life without hassling people. Uh, I also think we talk about hyper-individualism a lot,
0: um, especially in American culture, Uh you know, this uh, worshipping of... Do we generalize about it or what? You and I do, yeah. Well, that's okay, I guess. But I think that the importance of hyper-individualism in this country also leads to some of this resistance to thinking about our society in general terms, and that uh, prevents us from tackling our big issues.
2: In the United States, the whole idea of hyper-individuality is so extreme that you can't even design pavements in a neighborhood that agree with what they're going to be from one house to the next. You know, if you go down the street in Saratoga, one guy's got concrete squares, the next guy's got these brick paving blocks, the guy after that has some kind of asphalt printed paving textured thing, the guy after that has got marble, the guy after that has got slate, so we can't even build a sidewalk that agrees how it's going to behave during the course of one block. And, you know, then you have the battle of styles between buildings, and the architecture schools really promote the idea that everything has to be different. So they're right in there with the hyper-individualism. So you end up with a very kind of self-involved, narcissistic form of an, you know, expression. The, the places that we really love, you know, um, you go to uh, a city and a different culture in South America or Asia or Europe. And there are things about it that we would never tolerate that make these things great. You know, like the fact that all the building materials, all the roofing materials are identical in, you know, in a, an Italian hill town. They they all use the same red clay tile on the roofs. And they're not suffering because of that. In fact, it's one of the things that pulls together the the town into a unified, integral organism. You go to towns where you know that that where Adobe is the 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 regional building material, largely because it's found in nature, pretty much, or it can be formed out of things that are found in nature, and uh, you build a town out of that, and it's you know it hangs together. A lot of the mischief in our time, in the places that we live, really comes from having. Probably too many fabricated modular materials to choose from. Design for us is not really design, it's shopping. We don't really think about designing something consciously. we just go out and buy the materials for it and then slap them together. And uh, you know that, that's how we do it. So in, in a way, austerity is a great promoter of good um, integral hierarchical design. Mm. Uh, but hierarchy is another thing we have a tremendous problem with now in our culture because uh, we're so hung up on the idea that nothing can be better than anything else when, in fact, the universe is pretty much organized hierarchically. And, um, you know, when when nothing is any better than anything else, then nothing is any, really any good. Yeah, it, Maybe nothing is bad, but nothing is good either. And it's very important... When you're creating a place to live in, that it be composed of things that are good, that, that are well-designed, well-built, and built out of things that are worth building out of. And we don't do that. So, you know, the, the, gen, the general kind of guiding philosophy of my generation, which is, you know, the, the, um, this idea that nothing's better than anything else and that hierarchy is no good, you know, that's not very helpful. Uh, unfortunately, uh, to to wrap your mind around the reality of the universe, which is probably is hierarchical, you know, is painful for a lot of people. So Jim, before we wrap this up, we've talked about um, specialists and how
0: they create obstacles for making general progress. We've talked about hyper-individualism, getting in the way of collective action. I keep referring to the big picture, but uh, honestly, that's a little bit vague. Can you provide us a uh, wide-angle lens of what is the big picture in this country and how can we be framing um, our discussions when we try to make progress with issues like energy and land use and finance.
2: I think the most striking and impressive thing is our inability to form a coherent consensus about what is happening to us, especially economically, and what we're going to do about it. That to me is such a, just an overwhelming force. And, you know, it's an inability to make collective decisions or to, or to take a culture in a, or a society in a, in a direction that is really going to determine whether it lives or dies. So for me, you know, it's very specific. What is going to, what kind of thinking is going to prompt us into credible action, whether it's about how we reform medicine or how we occupy the landscape in terms of cities and towns or or what our transportation is going to be about or energy or education or, or any of the, the big questions that are now kind of hanging in the balance, especially um, uh, banking and, and, and finance, which threatens to sink our culture. And, and that, of course, has been... Probably the source of some of the worst thinking of the last several years. I think the heart of the issue really is about uh, leadership. And what we're seeing in the USA these days is a, a, a pretty comprehensive failure of leadership in all the important areas, whether it's politics or business or the media or or academia. And um, the great hope of the last year was that Barack Obama would come along and and correct some of that in the political arena, and that maybe it would trickle down into these other areas, and we'd get better leadership in business and and banking and and uh, cable television news and and uh, you know the the colleges of uh, economics and architecture and all the other things that we talk about. Uh, to some extent, you know, I think a lot of us are becoming kind of disappointed in, in the Obama effect. I know that I am in, in terms of uh, what he, his response to the banking crisis and to the economic crisis more generally. Sorry to use that word. But uh, what we're seeing is the erosion of authority and of legitimacy, in our leadership in America and, and in what we believe in and what, whatever rules the universe presents to us to guide us in our lives and to go forward in a collectively as a society. You know, this whole project of uh, civilization in a way is has to do with the sacredness of the human life and this human project. And uh, whether we really are on the side of the angels, whether if we're going to assume godlike powers, that at least we owe it to ourselves to be good gods, and not demons and not devils or bad entities. You know, I I, I think that we uh, we want to um, show goodwill towards the universe, and that that is at the nature of. Uh, whatever our spiritual mission is. And, um, so we try to formulate some general rules for going about that. Mm. And it's always a struggle, Yeah, but we do it.
0: Well, Jim, I'm feeling generally good about the way this conversation turned out.
2: Well, so. I feel generally good because I wrote the last chapter of the book that I'm working on today. Yeah. World made by hand Two, as we now say in the entertainment world. Yeah. Um, which has a provisional title, uh, The Witch of Hebron. Mm-hmm. And I got—I have to slap together a little epilogue here. Yeah. But basically, I'm done. So when's that going to make... So I can go out and become a crackhead now.
0: When's that going to make the uh, the screens of the drive-in movie theaters? Well, you tell me. <laughs> All right, Jim, I'm going to hit the road. I will talk to you soon. Okay, Duncan, I'll see you next time. Always fun. That's it for today's conversation. I have two listener calls to play in one moment reacting to our Boston podcast. But first, additional support for this program comes from Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks to download to your computer, iPod, or MP3 player. Audible has more than 50,000 titles to choose from in every genre and has a special offer to ConcertCast listeners... You can receive a free audiobook download if you visit audiblepodcast.com forward slash counselor and sign up today. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E podcast, one word, dot com forward slash counselor.
1: This is Mark Homer. I'm calling from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I'm surprised at the blank that you draw when you talk about vibrant center cities. I was just there in August, and it's a delightful place to walk around downtown, uh, not to mention places like West Philly, where uh, the University of Pennsylvania has pretty well fixed up its campus, and even Temple University has fixed up its campus, and there are quite a few uh, neighborhoods with character there. Uh, you'll have to allow for parts of the city that have been pretty much torn down and are coming back up again, like Northern Liberties, just south of Temple University. I would take take a uh, trip down there, spend a few days. Uh, Ask someone who lives there to show you around. I'm sure people would be happy to. It's become a very friendly area. Enjoy your show. Take care.
0: You've been listening to The Kunstler Cast, featuring James Howard Kunstler. To leave a listener comment, call toll-free at 866-924-9499. Send email to letters at kunstlercast.com. You can listen to all of our past programs, join our email list, find out how to book Jim to speak in your area, and talk about the show with other listeners at kunstlercast.com. I'm your host, Duncan Crary. Thanks for listening. (laughs)